Hey guys, Editor Dan stepping in before the episode real quick to let you all know that this episode kind of breaks from the format from the recent months, but we felt that the content was too important to put in now rather than later. Now, this usually wouldn't have even been a blip on the radar for you guys, but with the added stresses of impromptu COVID-related temporary isolations, this episode had to be recorded in the middle of the day and in not the most ideal of situations. Because of that, the background noises of my kids coming down off a of sugar high and Terry's fur baby made themselves known, and there's not a whole lot this lowly editor could do about it. The content is so good though, and we finally had a chance to get Terry, Adam, and I all in on the same call for the first time in what honestly felt like forever. With that said, thank you all for your presence and your patience, and we'll get back to the regularly scheduled program next week. On with the show. All right, so traditionally we have a cold open here with a witty question, and I, I don't have that for today because it's the first time in months I think the three of us have been in a call together at the same time. So, Adam, Terry, how are you? I'm Terry, great. Why, why don't you go first? I'm tired of talking to Dan. I see him every freaking week. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing all right. As I was just saying to you guys off air, it's like the, the because we know the whole world is struggling. Everybody's so sick of going on about it. And, you know, it's it's like there's a new zero point. So it's it's like saying that you were OK previously meant that you were standing on the Titanic, but you hadn't hit the iceberg yet. Saying that you're OK now means that you're in the ocean, but you haven't drowned yet. So, Dan, yeah, I'm OK. <laughs> You, you actually found space on that door next to uh, What's-Her-Face. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, Adam, exactly. how are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm living the life. I absolutely love doing these special episodes, so I get to go through my five-year plan and renumber every single breakdown that I have. So, <laughs> you know, it's always fun. But it's, it's not just an expel, uh, expel, an Excel spreadsheet that you drag and drop? Oh my God, Dan, you do not understand the Google fold. Well, you do understand the Google folders. Nobody else understands the Google folders that I have. <laughs> uh, there, there, there are more than, there are definitely more than a dozen that we oh, have to go through almost on a s- weekly basis. Side note, on, uh, so a couple of weeks ago, I, I remember there was the, uh, I think one of you guys, maybe both of you was like, hey, we're trying to find your Jackalware episode. And I was like, I definitely put it up there. I put it up there, put it up there. Speaking of not understanding uh, Google Drive, it's up there. I just uploaded it to my own little subfolder that I used to have related to my old job. So as I was deleting all of that stuff, I'm going through all like these like exercise breakdowns and stuff. And then there's just a random Jackalware episode in there. I have no idea how to operate the internet ever. That's why we need like a 25-minute lesson for me on every new platform that we use. Oh, man. Like for me, it's it's like the things I used to type back in the day in the um, old like recesses of the internet with like uh, the live journals and the MSN messengers of, of the days and bygone era. Like I'm terrified of some of that stuff coming back because I have no idea what I wrote back then. see i was smart enough at the time to be paranoid so i wrote everything under the uh, moniker of dan and then your last name so oh well thank you for that anyways let's get on with the episode it's a mimic the roundtable dungeons and dragons discussion podcast where you never know what you're going to get welcome to another episode in our conversation on dungeon master tips i'm dan and with me today Thankfully, more than just the two of us is Adam and Terry, and this episode is called Aquatic Adventures Swimming in Extra Rules. Last week, we signed off by promising an episode on Sahawagan, Sawajin, 
So who again? I promise it. So who again? I promise it's in the work. Um, and I guarantee we will iron out that pronunciation when we actually get to the episode. But we've got a problem moving forward in our discussion. And that's that all the next handful of episodes all share a common theme that might have some players out of their depths a little. And that is they are all about aquatic and underwater hordes. So this week we're going to break from our usual format to go back to our old format before we go back to our usual format for a couple more episodes um, so that we can break down the strategies and the rules on aquatic mechanics in Dungeons and Dragons 5e. So anyways, um, as we do with uh, D&D, there are kind of three pillars that we rely on quite frequently and we've we've brought them up before with the exploration and the social and the combat and well let's be completely honest when it comes to aquatic adventures social isn't really a big thing so we've come up with a new three whoa 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 whoa. hard stop you're wrong Social is a thing. You can talk to fish in this damn game. It just I, okay, doesn't have yes. special rules about it. Yes. So when we're breaking down a uh, episode where the three of us have to kind of talk about a rule set, we broke it down into three things. And that is exploring in an aquatic environment, combat in an aquatic environment, and, I mean, ships. It's a big enough deal where we need to... Um, fuck. God damn it, Adam. You gotta stop doing that while I'm, while I'm talking. <laughs> Sorry, Terry. Yeah, I'm updating the damn thing in front of Dan's eyes. <laughs> Just to oh. with them. So, <laughs> oh, I always, I always copy into a word document so I can make edits because I've made the mistake before of writing my notes and everybody else sees them. See, that's the right way of doing it. Um, I'm lazy and I'm doing it the wrong way, and Adam's making me pay for it. That's right. This is punishment. <laughs> yes. Anyways, so uh, we have our. Exploring an underwater environment, we have our fighting in an underwater environment, and then we will be covering ships as well. To get off, uh, to get off on the right foot, though, we're going to talk about what exploring and exploration in an aquatic environment is like. First off, we're going to talk about movement. Now, movement in water is typically one of three camps. Either it is not deep enough to swim in, but uh, not deep enough to uh, in, uh, inhibit your movement at all either. And that is just, it's just water walking through a puddle. But if it is deep enough to inhibit your movement, but not deep enough to swim in, then that water just counts as difficult terrain. This will be different for the different heights of your and sizes of your PCs. Like a gnome's knee high is not going to bother a Goliath at all, but a Goliath's knee-high is a swimming no. So uh, next is going to be the breathing mechanics in D&D well, 5e. No, no, no. The, th- have... the third one is actually swimming. It's so deep that it affects Oh, and, yeah. The third one is actually swimming, um, which has a whole slew of rules based off of uh, whether or not you have a swim speed, um, which we will get into momentarily here. Um, after... Uh, that we do have breathing mechanics that we should get out of way for out of the way first. Um, a creature can hold its breath in D and D five E for a number of minutes equal to one plus its constitution modifier with a minimum of thirty seconds. So long story short, a half orc barbarian with maxed out constitution could hold his breath for close to six minutes. 
Now, this ridiculousness aside, should uh, they reach that six minutes, a creature can then survive without holding its breath in the act of uh, suffocating or drowning or whatever it is for a number of rounds equal to its constitution modifier. This is at a minimum of one round. After which, if they are unable to breathe, um, the creature then drops to zero hit points and it's actively dying. The sticker here is, of course, that it cannot regain any hit points or be stabilized at all until it is able to breathe again. What's interesting now, here, that, it, sorry, Dan, what's interesting here is that it says right in the source material that they're considered choking during this point, but there's no real, um, like... Choking rules? There's no mechanical issue for, like, legitimately choking for these rounds here. You don't have disadvantage yeah. on anything, or you know, you're rolling with negative modifiers. There's no debuff or, or you know, condition effect that hits you. You're just, quote-unquote, choking. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's it. I, I like to think that they put that in that ambiguity. They put that in there intentionally, because if you are trying to choke the life out of somebody in game, like uh, a passionate end to a combat somewhere, um, you can rely on these suffocation rules for that. Yeah, well, this, this is actually an addendum to the suffocations, right? Like, this is, yeah, yeah. This is how all the suffocations. Yeah. So, that aside, let's move on to swimming. Um, with swimming, each foot of movement does cost double um, straight up like it's difficult terrain if that uh, um, that of course is uh, except if a creature has a swim speed uh, now an athletics check can be requested if there are extenuating circumstances like rough water encumberment or other such obstacles now um, that movement is also uh, doubled again if there is further difficult terrain in the while you're swimming through it like if you're swimming through difficult terrain well, which would be uh what would you say is that like swimming through like uh, seaweed right like but seaweed stacks and stuff like that yeah but it, but it's not it's not doubled again you add an extra foot of movement in uh inverts right so you do see yeah, this yeah. sometimes in the modules where it's both foggy and there's thick brambles or whatnot so it says um i think in some of the uh dragon lair effects you get it costs three feet for every one foot of movement right three feet of your movement speed for every every foot that you go so you're adding one and then one and then so the more difficulty you add to it the more levels of uh difficult terrain you're adding an extra foot per foot of movement so it's not like you're doubling and doubling and doubling because that's gonna be exponential instead of just linear so yeah yeah i i also find it a bit frustrating because um if you have the average movement speed of a medium creature, which is 30 feet, this math is easy. You move 10 feet instead of 30. Done. But if you're a dwarf or a um, halfling or a gnome or a small size creature that only moves 25 or 20 feet around, this math gets a little bit more complicated. And how do you divvy up that move? Um, if you end up like, uh, you can move 12 feet this round. How do you divvy that up? Well, if you're using theater of the mind, whatever, doesn't matter. Yeah if, yeah. if you are using the grid system, man, it's always round down. D&D 5th edition is round down. If you can move 12 feet, you move 10, hard stop. That's it. Yeah, okay, cool. Now, furthermore with swimming, you aren't Michael Phelps. Your character isn't Michael Phelps. You cannot swim a straight 8 hours unless you have a swim speed. Um, after each hour of swimming... Um, a Is it Michael Phelps' a sprinter swimmer who's swimming eight hours, Dan? 
I I just assume that he can swim for eight hours. He can that guy swim was very quickly for a short amount of time. Well, he could also probably swim very lazily for a long period of amount of time. I don't know. Don't sure. handicap Mike Phelps. Sorry. Hey, look, I can swim lazily all fucking day, my friends. That's as a matter of fact. That's the only way I swim. Yeah. Right. Now, after each hour of swimming, should you not have a swim speed, you are going to have to roll a DC 10 constitution saving throw um, to uh, avoid getting a level of exhaustion. And of course, this will be cumulative. Now, if you do have a swim speed, you can swim all day without penalty. However, after eight hours, you follow the normal forced march rules, which are found in the player's handbook on page 182. Now, for ease of access... Uh, we'll go over the mar- forced march rules now. Now, the forced march rules don't just apply to swimming. Therefore, any sort of movement uh, that your characters will go through should they have a speed. So, typically, um, the forced march rules come with a table which will um, inform you how far a character can travel in eight hours in a day. Now, you could push beyond that basic limit uh, at the risk of exhaustion. Furthermore, at... Uh, each additional hour of travel beyond eight hours, the character uh, the characters cover the distance shown in the hour column for their pace. Um, and each character must then make uh, one of those DC 10 co- uh, constitution saving throws at the end of every hour. That DC is 10 plus one for each hour past the eight hours, of course, and it is cumulative. So if you're marching for 11 hours, your DC will be 13. On a failed saving throw, a character suffers one level of exhaustion, um, which, of course, see your conditions for that. Now, when you look at this table, it kind of comes with three things. There is a moving quickly, a fast speed, a normal speed, and a slow speed. Uh, They provide a amount of feet you could travel per minute, um, per hour, per day, and um, what effect moving that speed will have. So should you be moving at a regular pace, which is your average 30 feet around medium creature, in a minute you could cover 300 feet, an hour will be three miles, a day will be 24 miles, and I was too lazy to do the conversion into real distance marking with uh, um, metric. So everything's going to be imperial because Watsi is, of course, American. Yeah, I mean, okay, sure, why not? Yeah. So what's what's interesting to, to point out here, though, is that when you have a swim speed, you know, you normally have like 30 or 40 foot movement, right? A lot of things are 40 or 50 foot movement. But if you don't have a swim speed, you swim at half speed, right? Because it's yeah. it's difficult terrain. So you're fucking slow compared to everything in the water. That's sketchy. Oh. That's scary. Yeah. yeah. But it also, it lines up. Like, realistically, we are. Like, humans were useless in most things that the rest of nature is not. So it... it, it it does kind of line up, but I, I like the way it does line up because it adds a lot of tension. Oh, I agree 100%. I mean, this is why I don't go near the water. I live on a fucking mountain for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, next we will cover the surface visibility uh, of the water and being able to see into the water um, and along the water. Now, whenever you are on a boat looking around and you have relatively calm seas with a bright sunny day... As Terry likes to say, it's two o'clock on a Thursday and there is no clouds in the sky. It's just 19 degrees, 19 degrees. It's just a nice calm day. Um, You can see from a crow's nest on a ship up to 10 miles radius around. Um, Now, overcast skies will reduce that distance by half. 
So now you can only see five miles around you and rain and fog reduce visibility just as they do on land with land rules. There okay. are there are rules for this in the DMG and in Ghost of Saltmarsh as well, like all the yeah. weather stuff. So like it's out there to and be it's neat and it's fun, but that's, that's what you should look for. We're not going to do an entire episode on fog. Weather. Yeah. yeah. Well, and to be completely honest, I would... Uh, use the rule set provided in Ghosts of Saltmarsh as your base level and ignore the stuff in the DMG because the stuff in Ghosts of Saltmarsh is uh, further refined rules. It's basically the the errated version of what they had in the DMG. So it's the most updated, uh, newest version of the rules. So I would rely on those rather than your rule set found in um, the DMG for any sort of weather or water travels i will say this though the dmg stuff is fine for general overland travel but when you want to get into the aquatic stuff and what kinds of hazards these things um present ghost of salt marsh is the correct book to go to you're absolutely yeah now um just to quickly touch on weather conditions a little bit more if they indicate both a strong wind and a heavy rain those will combine to bring um those will combine to create a storm on high waves Now, a crew that is lost in a storm will, of course, lose uh, visibility to all surrounding landmarks unless there is a lighthouse or some other magical marker of some sort. And any abilities made to navigate during those uh, that level of visibility is rolled with disadvantage. Oh, any checks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when it comes to underwater visibility, say you guys are swimming around, there are three levels to... uh, to kind of the the brightness of water. And this is not only a real thing, it is a thing that uh, kind of took me by surprise um, earlier today as I was reading it. There are, th- uh, these three levels are the sunlight level, the twilight level, and the midnight level. Zones. That yeah. alignment made me think that it was an atom thing. The zones, um, they're, they're technically called zones, not levels. Yes. Um, and uh, Adam kind of threw this little further bit of information at me, which was the sunlight zone or the euphotic zone, the twilight zone or the dysphotic zone, or the midnight zone, which is the aphotic zone. Um, So these are actual like defined regions of uh, sunlight travel in the ocean and light levels in the ocean, which is really cool to me. You're talking about the depths in the water. Yeah, yeah. This This is the depths of the water and specifically how light affects them. So in this sunlight zone, insofar as D&D 5e is concerned, now these rules are in Ghosts of Saltmarsh, the sunlight extends from the water surface down to about 650 feet. This area has the same neutral illuminations as the surface. So if it's sunny outside, you have bright, clear vision down to about 650 feet. Beyond that, in the twilight zone or the dysphotic zone, you have uh, down to about 1,000 feet. so between that 650 and 1,000 foot range, you have basically everything around you is dim light, but there will be patches of darkness as well. However, because it's the ocean and there's not a whole lot of things blocking vision that way, um, short of a boat on the surface of the water casting a shadow, um, that means everything around you is pretty much going to be at dim light. Now, once you get down to the darkness, uh, the midnight zone of this, which is any depth below 1,000 feet, um, there is no natural light penetrating down to this level. It is darkness and um, you will be relying on dark vision or um, other light sources to be able to see your hand in front of your face in this realm. Now, 
because of that, it seems like now would be a good time to further break down what dark vision happens because how many times around your table are you sitting there and say, well, it's dark and you have that one half work asshole speak up. I have dark vision. Well, dark vision does have a uh, very specific rule set that I think often gets overlooked. Many creatures in the fantasy worlds have dark vision. So we do want to uh, be clear about it. Within the specified range of your dark vision, a creature with dark vision can see in darkness as if it was dim light. And it could see in dim light as if it were bright light, okay? So areas obscured in darkness are only lightly obscured as far as that creature is concerned. However, the creature cannot discern color in that darkness, only shades of gray. That means that everything sight-based is done with disadvantage, right? Including attacks? In dim light, yes. Yeah. yeah. So if it is dim for a human, it is bright for a half-orc. So the human would have disadvantage, but the half-orc wouldn't. However, if it is dark for the human, it is dim for the half-orc, which means the half-orc is rolling disadvantage on perception checks in that space. But I got a question. Isn't that the same as just being blind? Aren't you just rolling with disadvantage when you're blind on the perception checks? Yes! It's bullshit. So what's the... Uh, like, I, I... Yeah, okay. I, I tend to add um, a a kind of plus or, or minus fail that I roll behind the DM screen. If you are swinging for something in the dark, you go ahead and you roll at disadvantage. And I'm essentially flipping a coin to see whether or not you're even targeting the right place, right? Behind the behind the screen. Because there has to be a certain level of additional um, difficulty to hit something that you absolutely cannot see compared to the guy that's standing in a fucking dark lit room, right? I agree with that, right? Because that's like, even if they hit, you're like, congratulations. Like, even if they hit, you're like, congratulations, you successfully hit the statue that was standing there that you thought was the enemy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you guys on that one. Like, it, there needs to be some sort of clarification for sure or, or advancements in difficulty as you go. Um, <clears throat> next, since we're talking about the depths of the ocean, I want to talk about pressure and temperature um, because there are rule sets in D&D 5e regarding the uh, pressure and the uh, temperature of the ocean. We'll talk about temperature first as we go here. Um, temperature is going to decrease as the depth of the ocean increases. So um, if you are swimming through relatively deep water, temperature is going to drop at, uh, to the point where if you are in the t midnight zone, you are going to be uh, having to deal with uh, the cold weather effects. Um, which could impose further levels of exhaustion based off of constitution rules. Uh, water pressure is kind of the same. This is going to be the weight of the water on top of the creature or object, and that's going to increase in depth as well. So for a creature without a swimming speed, each hour spent swimming at a depth greater than 100 feet, so this is going to be beyond your sunlight realm, is zone, going to count damn. as two... Zone, sunlight, zone. Eh, sunlight realm. So if you are in that twilight zone, there you are... Um, each hour of travel counts as two hours for your exhaustion rolls. And if you are in the midnight zone, each hour is... Sorry, no, not even in the midnight zone. And if you are at a depth of greater than uh, 200 feet, each hour is going to count as four hours for your constitution rolls. That's still well within the sunlight zone. You had 650 feet down there, right? Like by the time, Oh, yeah, that's true. By the time that you're trying to move through the twilight zone, it's 
it's like six hours for every one. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Now, there is an optional rule for how the pressure of the ocean affects different materials. Um, now, non-magical objects uh, not made to withstand that water pressure are going to take um, various levels of damage as they go down and be utterly destroyed based off the depth that you achieve. So if you've got basic glass, or there is a table that is there for this, um, but just to break it down real quick, if there is any glass or crystal or ice, something um, that can shatter like that, um, that is going to be destroyed at a depth of about 100 feet. Uh, conversely, bone or wood is 500. That's still within uh, the sunlight any, zone, by the way. That right. Yeah, that's still within the sunlight zone. Yeah. yeah. Um, stone at 1,000 feet will start getting crushed and destroyed. Iron at 1,500 feet, which, I mean, now we are in the midnight zone. Um, and there are magical metals as well that are going to be affected by this. Mithril will start getting uh, crushed and destroyed at 2,000 feet under the ocean. And adamantine will start getting crushed at 2,500 feet under the ocean. So one thing I just want to point out here, because I know where this is about objects really that we're talking here, is that uh, if bone is being destroyed at 500 feet, that is your skull as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's worth um, noting. Unless you have some sort of magical item that is designed to prevent you from taking this resistance or is resist or is um resistant to this pressure you're getting crushed if you're even traveling into the twilight zone with just your bare body i would say that's a zone like even like sea elves and tritons and them don't go that far down this is why you've got your crazy cephalopods and whatnot that are literal invertebrates that are small at low levels and then balloon up when they get closer to the surface. They have no bones. And like from an evolutionary standpoint, they can't have bones because they would just fucking yeah. die. So um, as we move on here, we're going to roll some initiative. And I, I want to ask a couple questions. The first question here, guys, is the swimming and breathing mechanics. Do you like them? Is there anything missing? Let's roll for initiative and um, discuss that. I got a natural one. Oh, I got 12. I got a 10. Terry... How does it feel to roll dice again, Terry? Oh, uh, you know what? It's it's so awesome, you guys. <laughs> Can't wait. I was like, <laughs> I am climbing the goddamn wall. I'm gonna be so committed to my next D and D game. Like, you guys are not even gonna know it's me. You're gonna be like, what? What have you done with Terry, alien imposter? When I show up with six binders and all these different notes and stuff, and I'm like method acting six weeks out. I can't wait. Terry's gonna show up in cosplay. Like, it's gonna be awesome. One hundred percent. What? I'm gonna play characters that you guys would never thought I would ever play ever. I'm so excited to be a. Terry's just gonna bust out that chainmail bikini he's got in his closet <laughs> yeah oh god i know i wish um okay well for for my answer for this i have no issue with movement and i think that's because it any issue i would have is overshadowed by the fact that i have so many issues with the breathing side I've got so right, many yeah. issues. I've got so many issues with the breathing side that the movement stuff. I'm like, yeah, fine, makes sense. I don't even want to. Don't even want to go there. Just that's okay. The breathing thing. I think we're all in agreed. Is it's it's far too long, and there's too many. There's too many holes in this for me as well. So for me, I would argue if if you're a, say you're a barbarian swimming underwater and you feel you need to attack something, you are doing a huge exhale of breath as soon as you swing that great axe. Or lunge with that weapon. Okay, you've now exhaled all of your breath. So now you're in the choking part of the rule, as far as I'm concerned. As soon as you take any action that requires exertion. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm 
I I can see where you're going with that. Um, my my issue with that is it. I think that's one of the reasons why they have it where it is uh, to give DM some space to like. Well, you know, you took a sucker punch to the gut, so you're gonna lose a minute of your breath. Yeah. Right. And and but it doesn't explicitly say that anywhere. I think that's cool. I think that's awesome. But again. I don't know anybody that could hold their breath personally for longer than like 40 seconds. Well, you right. have to and keep I... in mind too that, okay, I'm with you. I'm with you until I start to think about the fact that by the time that you've got a 15 in strength, you're a fucking superhuman. Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. at his peak had a 15 in strength. Superman has a 20 in strength because you guys are demigods at this point. So being able to hold your breath for six minutes as Hercules... Sure. You know what? I'll give that to you. That's fair. We have to remember that just because we tend to min-max our stat blocks doesn't necessarily mean that we are still um, as realistic as we were at level one, right? I know we all love the gritty realism of it, but I was reading a thing on Reddit earlier today, actually, about how... um, the big complaint where spellcasters get more and more powerful and level 20 spellcaster is insane, but a level 20 martial character is just like still swinging a sword and doing nothing is because we resist the idea of the fact that these guys are not Batman. They're not Captain America. They're fucking Superman at this point, right? Like when you are level 20, yeah. you are punching holes in walls. You should be able to hold your breath that long. It seems ridiculous that a level two character can do this. But I mean, we are all big damn heroes, right? Like that's that's what yeah. we're for. So, I again, no, me- what that mechanically, I don't love this. But I've bitched about it in the past, and I've kind of come around on it a little bit, especially because of the <laughs> whole dying mechanic that's attached. As well, like if you're still forty feet underground and you start to die, what do you do? Or like underwater, rather, what do you do? No, what I I you've kind of convinced me the other way here because you can look at item. Uh, like item damage levels as well and like how much strength it takes to break an inch of wood or an inch of stone or like that level of stuff and a character with a 14 in strength can break stone fairly easily like you have an above average chance to break stone if you have a 14 strength a 20 strength yeah you're not only just punching through walls you're punching through concrete you're punching through stone walls you're creating your own doors you're denting iron doors with your fists however i have to say yeah right i have to say at face value i 100 agree with terry this is fucking ridiculous this breathing shit is not a perfect mechanic by any means and in any other system i would want to overhaul it if it was like this in 3.5 or you know call of cthulhu or anything else it would require a massive overhaul but because it's so streamlined for fifth ed i feel like me fucking with it is just going to get noodly unnecessarily yeah that, yeah i think my, my issue with it is while it while it is very streamlined and, and simple to follow and everybody knows where they stand what should be a huge threat and really a huge puzzle in this environmental factor of we shouldn't be able to hold our breath this long underwater and especially when taking damage dan if i was to and i know we're talking about underwater but dan if i was to set you on fire do you think there might be a chance that you would expel some air after that happened why me why are you setting me on fire set adam on fire why would i set adam on fire (laughs) he only ever brings good things to my life you seem to bring problems thank you Ouch! I joke. But my point. I'm joking. But my point is like even taking damage. I think should have a detrimental effect. Um, 
on your breathing, you know, like Adam mentioned before, you get sucker punched in the gut. Okay, well, you're not really holding any breath at this point. But I see the I see the flip side is we, you know, we can go all day with this and make all these different rules. And then before we know it, we're back to 3.5 on the amount of rules we have. When really yeah, the whole yeah. idea behind 5e is it's so streamlined and it's just pick up and play, you know, learn the rules in, in 20 minutes and you've got it. Yeah. Well, if we want to talk about complicated rules, let's talk about these visibility mechanics. Let's roll the dice again. Do you okay. guys like the visibility mechanics? Is there something missing? Is there something you would throw in there or take out? Okay. I got a three. I'm rolling fantastic today, guys. I got a two. I got, I got a 14. Ah. Um, nice. Okay, so look, we bitched earlier about how dark vision needs to have and like darkness and whatnot. There needs to be a graduated, um, you know, tier system to it. But as far as the sunlight zones, twilight zones, and midnight zone, like, I like that. I really do. You should never, ever, ever be outside the sunlight zone in D&D 5th edition. If you're below yeah. 650 feet, it is nigh unsurvivable. You have to do something, like, crazy um, as far as your um, your ability to even exist. It has to be magically infused somehow. I've got a couple of questions, though. One of the things that I like about the Twilight Zone is these patches of darkness. Can there not be patches of dim light in the Sunlight Zone? Because if you swim underneath the Kraken, you should be rolling with disadvantage to see stuff underneath. Yeah, I agree. Right. Um, yeah, so agree. it's just it's just weird that they, you know, they made some point of saying it in the Twilight Zone. Um, which, by the way, Dan, if you don't cut in the opening credits of Twilight Zone... Whenever we start talking about it, like the... I'm, gonna I'm be... not going to do it every single bloody <laughs> time, but it'll happen. Yeah, okay. Obviously, that was a lie. Um, <laughs> but uh, the other thing that I have... My big question here is the elemental plane of water. What are we doing about underwater visibility? And underwater pressure, right? Like, we're going to talk about pressure in a second here, but, like, what the hell? Yeah, right? So, I've got, I've got questions. Um, as it stands... I don't hate this. It also means that I'm not worried about light sources underwater because n nobody is going into the, the sunlight zone. Um, like, I mean, like underwater at the ocean, right? I right. don't have to worry about people yeah. throwing pebbles with light cast on them, you know, into the water and shit like that. Underwater caves and stuff, it's a bit different. But I feel at that point you have, uh, like, you're choosing to go underwater. You can just end up underwater on the ocean, like, without without wanting to right a big yeah. enough wave or a kraken or something knocks you overboard right and now you're yeah. worried about it and if you can't see you're screwed so I, I like this the other thing to keep in mind too is that it's very 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 specific the same natural illumination conditions as above the water which means if it is at night or it is during a storm it will be different yeah the the thing that uh pulls my attention out here is the uh I don't really, other than what you've said, Adam, I don't have any other issues with the visibility. However, it does pull uh, pull attention to the fact that anything beyond a foot, um, I cannot comprehend in my Canadian, definitely don't live my life in imperial frame of mind. Um, anything under a foot, like I can measure in inches and, and that that's fine. But I have no idea how long a freaking yard is i have no idea how like <laughs> oh. it, honestly let's i can't talk, conceive how fathoms. far a mile is let's talk about fathoms right? shall we so right <laughs> so i i just as a nitpicky issue for someone who's not a dirty uh, uh colonial um are they separatist? I'm not a dirty separatist. I was going to say um, you are colonial. Well, no, we won't go down that. I am a dirty colonial, but I'm not a dirty separatist. Anyways, the I would love to like have some assistance in the printed material for 
this is how this translates to metric because three, like all but two countries in the world use, uh, use metric. So why the hell are we given Imperial? Uh, all right. That's just okay. my little. Okay. So I was complaining about this, Terry, before you got on the call, I, I was going on about, right. about, uh, this nonsense with Dan. So the measurements for the twilight zone, it's between 650 and 1000 feet in Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition in reality, yeah. because these are real things, sunlight zone, twilight zone, and midnight zone, they're real depths, right? Right. And it's 656 feet in reality. Meters. No feet in reality. Cause it's like, Oh yeah. It's like 200 or something meters. Right. So, but it's 1000 meters and like 3000 and some odd feet, but they didn't do the conversion. They just went straight 650, like, it, they got the conversion right for the sunlight to twilight, but they just fucking gave up on the twilight to midnight. And it's almost like they did it for, for the sake of ease, but it's going to confuse people that actually know a thing or two about how water fucking works in right. the real world. Like, I just, it's like not even Wizards of the Coast truly understands this shit. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure... I'm not sure I have any issues with it, and I think the reason this is is this is going to be such a like a, a niche thing, you know, such a specific time where there needs to be a concern about the rules in the midnight zone, you know. It's like I'm, I don't even know if I'm ever going to be in a campaign where I'm going to be concerned about the visibility rules in the twilight zone, um, and so for for that reason, there's not enough to get me hot and bothered when we were talking before about the breathing rules that's something that will likely come up multiple times in a campaign but for this i'm 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 not too concerned i'm just like okay that's the rules i'll go with it should it ever come there because there's not enough which is standing out where it's really bothering me yeah in, in my opinion the the breathing rules and the uh um the pressure rules as well which we'll roll about those in just a second um they kind of fill this realm of if I'm playing in a game and uh, say Adam's the DM and he goes, hey, everything you're rolling is at disadvantage because you're in this zone of the water. I'm like, yeah, sure, man, whatever. I don't care. Yeah, I'll roll. I'll roll with disadvantage. I guess that makes sense. It is such a like niche rule that it makes sense. But like as a player, I'm not looking at that. I'm just going to trust that whatever my DM says is right. Yeah. You're, in you this know, regard, right? No, no, no. I will tell you this, though. We all know that come Monday morning when you are settling into work, you will have every table has that one player that is going to send you a, uh, so I looked it up on the weekend and, uh, actually the way that it should have worked is, uh, and that just gives me. Yeah. Guilty. That's me. Yeah. That's me. So yes, you do that to me all the time, Dan. It frustrates the shoot out of me, but, but I'm glad at they At least I don't do it at the table. No. And I appreciate that. So, uh, I am just giving you a hard time. But the uh, I, I do appreciate that these rules exist. This is a DM yeah. rule. It's not a player rule, right? Like it's, and it's so nitpicky. Yeah, don't build a character around your underwater visibility. We what what this does. What I do like about this is this gives great opportunity to really lean um, to really lean into these rules as a DM. If you're coming up with a creative situation, I have a little bit of experience many years ago, back in two thousand eight. I went, uh, I went scuba diving in Egypt in the Red Sea with the army, and we did some night diving and some and some wreck diving. And what Who the specific fuck are you? I, I <laughs> what, what form of like British SS bullshit are you involved in? Did you did you walk out in the James Bond speedo when you came out of the out of the water? 
absolute t- no there was a, there was an issue actually uh there was i keep i keep bleeding that came out wrong um from like my uh nose and stuff when i scuba dive and uh it was getting to the point where they were like we can't have you swimming around the red sea with blood coming out your nose all the time that's not gonna be good for the rest of us so i almost got taken off the stage anyway but one of the things i got from that was when i was going on night diving was it was so important to, to hold on to the rope if you're going into caves or you're going into these these ships and things because as soon as visibility becomes an issue for example if you knock up all of the silt and and that that and that room like fills with silt or whatever and your visibility goes to zero they were saying you, we will never ever find you again and you will drown because you if you lose that rope you could be 20 feet away from it but if you're in the middle of the ocean and you cannot see or you're in a cave or something you will die there and you could be 30 feet because you will never find it again ever and i think yeah. this is something this is something that you can lean into as a dm if you ever if you have some sort of encounter a nighttime encounter in the ocean where the party gets separated by as little as maybe 10 or 15 feet if you're away from different people but you have zero visibility you cannot see them and you cannot see each other how do they get back together how do they find out what to do? Because we were saying before, well, you can hold your breath for five minutes, but all of a sudden, now you can only hold your breath for five minutes because you're in a cave underwater and you don't know which way to go. You may be going deeper into the cave. Then things change all of a sudden, and now I'm leaning into these rules because it's making uh, such a new, fresh puzzle that I think uh, could be very rewarding for me as a DM because I get to kill people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're, you're, you're like refreshed with the rules. I am now anxious and terrified. <laughs> The idea of being stuck in the pitch dark in an underwater cave, frantically flailing around for my rope. Oh yeah. man, I'm 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 never going swimming again. Screw and you know, that noise. Uh, but it could be it could be ten feet away from you, right? But ten feet in which direction? And the moment that you flail well, once, you have reoriented your body in that room, and you have lost all sense of personal navigation. Brilliant. This this reminds me of like uh, the movie The Descent. Or the abyss, like there's there's a bunch of movies that really lean yeah. into this. Th- th- those are very different. Those are very different movies. The abyss. But I, love the I mean, yes, they are. That simple that simple questions. If you put a PC in this situation and they're like, "Oh, I'm just going to swim back to my party or whatever," and you just simply go, "How do you decide which direction to go?" Oh, survival shit. check. Here we go. Yeah, brilliant. Oh man, how much of a jerk DM? Well, not even a jerk DM. How cool of a DM would you be if you're like, okay, there's a there's a bright light twenty feet to the uh, to like your <laughs> left. It's an right? angler fish. Fuck and then you. your player goes, "Okay, I'm gonna go. I'm yeah. gonna go toward it." Okay, now the light turns off. Oh no! Like it, it's 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 terrifying. That's just that's just horrifying. No, no, I'm I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> Anyways, uh, let's briefly discuss these uh, pressure and temperature mechanics while we go here. Um, roll dice. Do you like them? Is there anything glaring? Anything? That's- I got 13 for this one. Uh, a natural one again. That's two. That's got- that's karma. Adam, Anyways, um, I don't care. Right? Like no, that's yeah, that's fair. That this is by the time that this becomes an issue, the uh, the pressure for glass crystal ice is interesting. That may come up if something falls overboard. Maybe not ice so much, but you know, when you drop your spyglass overboard from the crow's nest during a like you get hit by a rogue wave and then they dive in to go get it, well you've got 100 feet to do it. Your swim speed is only 15, but it's dropping at a rate of 10 and you're counting rounds and down you go and whatnot, it is going to break after a certain number of rounds just from the pressure. I like that. Yeah. I cannot see anything 
else beyond that becoming a factor. Do you have any idea how deep a thousand feet is? Holy shit. Actually, Dan doesn't. He doesn't know. Incidentally, Dan, how you figure it out, how I understand the Imperial um, way of thinking is uh, I can do 12 inches as a foot. I can eyeball that. I can also do three feet is roughly a meter stick, right? From school, like a okay. stick meter stick. And that's what a yard is yep. as well. Give or take. It's a little bit more than three feet, but there we go. A person is six feet, give or take. I mean, not 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 every person, but um, not your friend Johnny, but... The average person is six feet. And, uh, when... Yeah, just stack Johnny on top of Johnny's own shoulders and, and you'll get to around six feet. Yeah, there you Adam, go. the average um, person is 5'9", by the way, and that's very important to me because I'm 5'11 and three quarters. So don't tell me the average person is six feet. The average person is 5'9". <laughs> the average person is not insecure about their height either. And... <laughs> Um, no, but my my ten foot rule is uh, most modern buildings between levels, but like between stories, it's ten feet, right? That is a general guideline. It, that is not always the case, and that's very general. But when I think how big is fifty feet, I think five story building. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's closer to twelve than it is ten, but that's that's just semantics at that point. That's that. I mean that's a good that's a good way to figure it out. When it comes to miles, though, I don't know, man. I'm doing conversions. What's one point six kilometer? Like I'm I'm going. I'm going at it from that perspective, but I legitimately don't have a frame of reference. I guess my speedometer would help. Yeah, that I just line up to those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only thing I find really glaring or missing out of the pressure and temperature rules, um, one is that crystal breaks at the same rate as glass. I would definitely have crystal break a little bit lower. I would I would line that up even with stone. Um just to have like a translucent material that like your odd gnome can make for a uh, dirigible, 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 a submarine. But, but like, I hear what you're saying, but remember how crystal actually forms on a molecular level. There's a weak point. It will break. Yeah. I mean, uh, you're, you're not wrong, but I, I, I would definitely have some sort of like hard as stone level, uh, translucent material that you can see through i'm trying to remember um, what, what is, it's um I, i've seen that i can't remember what universe it exists in where it's like uh glass steel it's called where it's it's glass as hard as steel like you should just have your own gnomish bullshit crystalline thing for well that. E- e- we we have we have you know iron wood level stuff with like wood as hard as iron why can't we have glass as hard as stone it it's the same leap Hey, do you think that the, these pressure mechanics should work the same way for the Underdark? Uh, uh no, because I mean, well, what the, the pressure does... of Go on. the the pressure of air is going to uh, be far less than the pressure of of the water. Uh, yeah. Water, right? Like, there's just less mass to worry about to generate that pressure. Now, when you're dealing with like wind in the Underdark, I think uh, the tunnel effect and stack effects of air moving through enclosed spaces is should be something that is heavily featured when any sort of underdark or cave campaign is because uh those two things would make that area feel a lot more real make it feel a lot more um uh logical in in its execution because Whenever you have some sort of negative and positive pressures of air, I mean, this is my job, right? Like, this is what I do for a living, is is measure airflow and air pressure. So 
I I am putting that into my campaign. But when it comes to like a crushing level of pressure in the Underdark, no, not 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 because of mass, but because of flow and velocity. I would I would have something, but only in that uh, specific example. Mm. Uh, I don't mind these rules because when there's very uh, specialist rules like this, it kind of inspires me more than anything else because now I start to build encounters around a, a set of rules which the, the party may not be familiar with or, you know, may be coming across for the first time. And so I start to think, oh, that, oh isn't that interesting? Because now the, the Sahu again, who are controlling sharks, for a quick example, oh, I, no, I don't have to kill you all. I just have to grapple you in my mouth and then suddenly swim down and down and down and down. It's like the, uh, it's the, this is the ocean version of my dragon picks them up and drops them strategy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So look forward to this for the next six weeks, <laughs> but uh, but but I see when I see rules like this, I I want to lean into them for for encounter building because you know same as I always make the joke about every D and D encounter seems to be in a wide open field, and Dave was saying like a well swept stone floor, you know the ocean just seems to become the ocean. But no, when you can build encounters around rules like this, they, then you start to add the locations of where those rules would make sense, and it, things start to get a lot more interesting. If you just lean into rules like this so i don't have issues with them again because they're so specialist and i think it makes sense instead i just start to draw inspiration what i can do with this yeah i like that that makes a lot of sense cool that'll be it for the environmental side of uh naval and aquatic adventures let's do a commercial before we move on to cover the combat hello podcast people podcast people we're recording yes but it makes them sound like pod. We're recording. You're recording. Fuck. Hello, podcast people. We've got a couple of things going on that you might not know about, and so we thought we'd cut away to a little reminder. First of all, we just want to point everyone to our YouTube channel again. We appreciate that all of you listen on your respective favorite podcast apps, but the It's a Mimic YouTube page has all of our shows laid out in playlists. That means you can listen to our Dragon episodes back-to-back or dig through the Campaign Builder or touring the Multiverse series without scrolling through the backlog or having to use a search function. New episodes get uploaded within a week of airing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever, but the whole backlog is up there. Even the episodes we're embarrassed about. Yeah, fuck, those early cold opens were sloppy. Yeah. And delicious. The other thing we want to mention is... What? You know what else is sloppy but delicious? Whatever you're going to say next is just going to get cut, so... Well, look. The other thing we want to mention is our sneaky little store that lives an unassuming little life on our website. There are stickers, magnets, phone cases, notebooks... Cups, water bottles, coffee mugs, and travel wait, mugs. Wait, wait, I can have a mug? I'm tired of your ugly mug already, man. I want a mug. Ooh. We even have masks in a variety of sizes because we're socially conscious people. The current designs are for the It's a Mimic mic and the Deep Dark Irradiance logo, but we'll be updating the store as time goes on. How big are the mugs? I don't know. There's a standard one and a tall one. And a travel mug too. Jesus, I need to look at this website more often. So, please take a second to check out what we have to offer. We really appreciate the donations we've received through the website, but we want to make sure that you guys have the option of getting something for your hard-earned money. Every little bit helps keep the lights on and the side projects rolling. And we love you for your support. So thank you to everyone out there who visits www.itsamimic.com and checks out our online store there. <laughs> hey, there's even a little pin with a logo on it. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel for perusing the older episodes. Now, without any further delay, 
let's head back to the show. Jesus, three different kinds of stickers, Dan. We are capitalist whores. Will you please take these damn commercials seriously? No. Okay, so first of all, I want to take you guys through uh, noticing enemies uh, and encounters. Noticing the enemy and visibility underwater is going to depend on, yes, it's going to depend on light, but it's also going to depend on water clarity as well. Like I was just talking about earlier, you know, what if all of the dirt gets kicked up or there's something within the water that's that's stopping visibility. This isn't anything to do with dark vision at this point. This is essentially being blinded by by something else. So, you know, you know, if we were to be in a situation where we have clear water, but we also have bright light, that means that we can see for up to 60 feet while underwater. But if that clear water was to then turn to dim light, then it goes to 30 feet. Well, now we're in inside of a distance where a creature with a swim speed can move at you in a single round. So now everything changes. Now there's much more added tension here based on based on the placement of things um, and, and, and how this encounter might go within one round. But if you have murky water or no light, that encounter distance goes down to 10 feet. And that changes everything. Within these areas, within these encounters, if we were going to be doing melee attacks, this is where things will change again. And this is these are rules that can be forgotten by a DM if they're brand new to brand new to this kind of situation. Especially because a the pl- the players are likely not going to remind you, and if you're new to it, they're probably brand new to it as well. But when making a melee attack, you're going to have disadvantage on that attack if your character does not have a swim speed. If it does not have a natural swim speed, you have disadvantage on the attack. There, there are some exceptions to this rule. If you're, the weapon that you're using is a dagger, a javelin, a short sword, spear, or a trident, then you will not necessarily, you will not have disadvantage on that attack. Ranged weapons is going to be different again. Ranged weapons will automatically miss a target beyond the weapon's normal range. There are exceptions to this rule again. Crossbow and net. Nets are not used often enough for my liking. The next character that I make is going to have a net. Or, or if you have a weapon that is thrown uh, like a javelin, so this would include a spear, a trident, uh, or a dart, for example. Well, no, These all feel like piercing weapons. Yeah, hold on, hold on, hold on. Just for clarity's sake, those um, those ones are the ones that don't get disadvantage underwater. They still need to be within the normal ring, right? Everything else has yeah. disadvantage underwater. That's correct, like, yeah. Yeah, nothing works beyond the the... You know, tw- you know it says on our what's on something it'll be like twenty feet or sixty feet. It doesn't work beyond the twenty feet, right? Like it's close. Nothing will that. work beyond the normal range. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. So but yeah, it all feels situ- like piercing damage. Yeah, it it it's kind of. I mean, I mean, I have thoughts about creatures without a swim. Uh, sorry, with a swim speed, don't roll with disadvantage, like we just talked. Um, with bludgeoning weapons, like I I, I don't see as how by uh, having a swim speed would. Oh, I've got some opinions. I'm going to save it for initiative. Yeah, yeah, but like when when it comes down well, to it, piercing is going to work. It that like when you're underwater, piercing is going to work best, and I think that's the point they're trying to get across. Yeah, that's what it seems to be. Yeah, um, but we're going to have situations with resistances as well. So, and this one is fairly obvious, but may still get overlooked sometimes. Is that if you're a creature or an object that's fully immersed within water, will have resistance to fire damage. So I was saying before about how you can lean into rules for inspiration. That's something that, that again, I might lean into. It seems to make sense. Spellcasting. This is according to Jeremy Crawford's sage advice on Twitter. Okay, <laughs> Being underwater does not prevent spellcasting. Creatures that can breathe underwater are able to use the verbal component as well when casting spells underwater. What's interesting is that there's no rule that, that prohibits verbal components from working underwater. And I'm sure we'll discuss this afterwards. Um, but if something to bear in mind is that if you're talking, you are no longer holding your breath. And again, I'll argue this more later, but I would also argue 
that you've expelled your air. If you're talking and you're giving out complex, arcane words to cast a spell, you now have no more air in you. And the third rule to cover here is that the intent is that once you cast a verbal component spell, you're no longer holding your breath, and so now you're on the con modifier plus one rounds. The rule for the rule for the, the for the choking. So when it comes to rolling initiative, oh sorry, go on guys. No, no, no I was just gonna say that's uh. So you can cast a spell, but holy shit, that's gonna hurt if you need a verbal component. You can get it off, but you better make sure that you are near the surface. Yeah, absolutely. So should we roll initiative on this, and then we'll go through each of the areas together? We'll go over it just like we did before. Sure, sure thing. So okay, so the first question I ask just before we roll is, um, how do you feel about the mechanic for noticing encounter encounters underwater? Okay, let's roll. Let's do it. What the hell? I got a I'm using a different dice. This dice is done. I got another natural one. <laughs> I got a 13. <laughs> got a 13. All right, Terry, you answer your own question first. I will do. Yeah, my opinion, for, for noticing the encounters, I, I'm just more excited by it than anything. I don't feel restricted by these rules. I think the rules make sense. It, it leads me into more, I'm starting to think, use this more of like fog of war, old command and conquer style fog of war, because you are likely going to be in the situation before you realize the situation is occurring. Side story again, okay? I know you guys are making jokes before, but my scuba situation before. On that same um, uh, scuba situation that I was in before, we were doing a wreck dive, okay? It was on a World War II ship. There was lots of, like, motorcycles and things, and there was lots of little rooms we were swimming through. And my partner that I was with at the time, he's in the scuba, not in, in real life. The, the scuba partner I had at the time was a little bit... He used to get too excited on things, and he'd try, try and push his way into stuff, and I always wanted him to slow down. So there was one time... I was, I was leading it, and he's supposed to be on my shoulder, and we went around this corner and on this ship, and he was so excited to get in the room, he started pushing me, and I was trying to desperately swim backwards, but I couldn't communicate to him, because obviously we were underwater, and I was trying to desperately swim backwards, because as we turned the corner, there were three, this is true, strike me down, there were three lionfish in this room. It was like literal real life D&D. Just as we turned this corner in this room in the ship and I couldn't tell the guy that they were there and I was trying to swim backwards and he was so excited to get in the room he was trying to push me forwards into these lionfish. I don't know if you guys know what lionfish is but if a lionfish touches you you're in a world of pain and you'll probably die underwater an awful death. Yeah. But th- that situation is exactly what it could be like in your D&D when, you're, when your visibility is so minimized and also your communication is so minimized as well because you, you're going to be in these situations situations before you realize you're in them you know within one round these creatures with swim speeds are going to be on top of you if you're in any murky water or low visibility and so with you i just get much more excited by it you know i don't feel restricted by these rules at all again i'm just excited by them yeah yeah look i really like this i wish that i had something a little bit more in depth for myself i as far as the underwater encounter distance i really i like okay so in clear water you don't know that a thing is there until it's 60 feet from you. But you have no That's frame right. of reference. I like the idea of the fact that you can see a dark shape coming at 90 feet away. But you don't know. It looks like a medium-sized creature. But then at 60 feet, it looks like a large-sized creature. And then at oh, 30 yeah. feet, it is gargantuan. Right? Like, it is. It, as it gets closer, it's bigger and bigger and bigger. Because I assume that you can see the beak of the kraken before you ever see a tentacle. Or when a tentacle comes at you and it looks like just a tip at first... And it gets thicker and bigger and longer. I'm just describing 
my sex tape now. And so uh-huh. anyway, like I, I think that the revealing of the nope, still talking about my sex tape. I think that the revealing of the creature no, I'm still there. Okay, so and when you are underwater, you should be able to gradually introduce whatever the threat is. Can you clearly see the sunken ship, or are you just aware of a of a mass? That is relatively dark against the bright sand. Right? How close right, do you have right. to be? I like that 60, 30, and 10 are there for definitive answers, but I would definitely play with some misdirection for distance and size outside of these. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I can't agree with you guys more um, on them. Like that the, these things I, I would honestly use these levels of uh clarity and visibility ranges for things outside of water, even. Um, I know this is primarily the aquatic episode, but like using this stuff for a variety of density of fogs for visibility, if if I'm doing a big exploration thing, right? Like uh, where there isn't necessarily combat within the fog because you have a, a, um, obfuscation rules and um, obscuring rules, but like using these mechanics outside of specifically an underwater thing is great. Like using these in the astral sea. I, I think when you come to like astral projection and, and running around in that realm, you can use some of these underwater mechanics um, for your exploration while also not having to worry about holding your breath, right? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, sorry, uh, let's roll so, again. So, so sorry, hold on. I just, because I'm looking it up here because I have a computer in front of me um, and I'm multitasking. The um, the weight of air. Remember, I asked you, would you apply this pressure to uh, to the underdark as well? The weight of air is one thirty fourth the weight of water, which means it is uh, you would have to go significantly deeper to get that amount of pressure. So yeah, yeah. So there, there you go. There, there's the legit answer. Okay, uh, okay. So we'll roll again. But the question is, before we do, how do you feel about the mechanics for the melee and ranged attacks? Okay, let's hit it. Ooh, finally, I got an eighteen. I got a 12. 12. Oh, Terry, oh. roll off. Roll off. One. Oh, fuck off. I got a one, two. <laughs> roll off really? again. Okay, roll off. I finally roll well, and you both start rolling ones. What is this nonsense? 14. I got a four. Okay, there we go. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, for me, I I have never understood why slashing weapons don't get the same uh, treatment as piercing underwater. Slashing, to me, should function similarly. It's cutting through the water, and just like piercing is piercing. Uh, like I, it doesn't make sense. Bludgeoning makes sense. There'd be a lot of resistance on the weapon. That is why it would be with disadvantage. So I don't understand why slashing is not given the same treatment as piercing. The other thing that bothers me is why does your ability to swim underwater with a swim speed, why does that make it so that you can now swing a hammer without disadvantage? Dan, How does your ability to be able to swim quickly underwater make it so you could swing a hammer better? Dan, if you could not swim even without a threat, and then if you could not swim, and then I then asked you to attack a shark at the same time, how proficient at that do you think you'd be? Oh, terribly. <laughs> exactly. Just, just, just terrible. But if you could swim, but, you know, if you did have the ability to swim, it would be easier to use your weapon on top of that. I, I mean, yeah, a, a dagger and a axe because of the resistance of the water. But like, um, if if we follow your train of logic there, Terry, if if you ask me, who is not a strong swimmer, to attack a shark underwater, I'm screwed if I have an axe or a hammer. But if I've got a rapier, I'm good. If I've got if I've got a long needle. I'm okay. I'll be fine. 
right? Like it, it, there is a disconnect in the logic with that mechanic that bothers me. <laughs> that being said, it's also not counting third dimension travel when you're fighting underwater and we start having an issue with like, okay, this one's below you and, and you're kind of like the positioning of creatures in combat underwater three-dimensional is difficult to begin with trying to remember whether or not your uh what what type of weapon uh you're using or what type of damage that spell uses to see if it would be affected by by this i don't know man i i have issues uh i don't i i see where you're coming from but i don't have issues with it because i think it makes you know if it's like I said, if you were in a situation where you're trying to you you suck at two things, you're you're now trying to attack something at the same time as you still also don't even know how to swim, I think you're just gonna have disadvantage on that attack because you're not gonna be able to do it effectively because you don't understand how to move your body properly in water. But if you like to take this to the extreme, if you were like an Olympic synchronized swimmer and I was like stab the thing underneath you, you'd be able to you'd be like flip flip, reverse boom. You'd be down there. You'd be a lot easier for you. I see what you're talking about with regards to like slashing or piercing. But again, there's still going to be still going to be a higher surface area of a slashing weapon than there is of of a piercing weapon of a dart or something. And there has to be a point that you cut it. And when it comes to a slashing weapon, it's not just the blade, it's your whole body has to swing. Your arm is extended, has to move through the water to, to swing that sword. That's not going to happen as effectively as just uh, as just stabbing your spear. I see what you're trying to say, uh, and, and, and it makes sense, but like, why does a creature have swim speed make it so that there is no issue with doing these like it, it just doesn't make sense to me i don't know no it's their ability to 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 move effectively in the water they know how to do it's like it's i don't know it's like saying it's okay it's like saying uh why does a person's ability to ride a horse dictate how well they can fire their bow and arrow from on top of a horse it's like because they know how to ride the horse, so that bit's squared away. Now they only have to think about this this one challenge. But if you didn't know how to ride a horse and you weren't very good at firing a bow and arrow, they, they both would be hard. I mean, I yeah, I okay, I I see what you're saying, but like learning how to no, properly direct no, all right, a hold on, bow. The, the, hold up, the toilet behind me stopped flushing, so I can I can join in now. All right, so I've got so <laughs> many things to say. Terry is one hundred percent on board like he's on i'm on the same page as terry with this one dan this comes down to your arm movement i want you to think about how you thrust forward uh spear right you're at hip level pushing forward right that is the same mechanic with about the same level of strength that you would use underwater or standing on land it is the same roughly the same amount of strength now i want you to swing a one-handed war hammer right over your shoulder whether it's a long sword, a great sword, or whatever, it is different underwater than... Look at water aerobics. Water aerobics are effective because you are trying to do big movements underwater. Stabbing a spear or a dagger or a trident forward is not as big a movement as, as twisting your entire upper body, right? You think about how many okay. times can you stab a dagger forward before your arm gets fatigued versus how many times can you swing a baseball bat before your entire body gets fatigued. That's the difference here. And when it comes to the swimming speed, honestly, yeah, 
I've got three things to say about that. One, most things with a swimming speed have scales. They glide through water more easily. Two, most things with a swimming speed tend not to wear clothes, which means they're going to be more effective. They've got some really um, loose jewelry, like seashells hanging off of them, but they're not weighed down by fucking pants. And three, it's an evolutionary thing. You were just straight up, like, you didn't learn how to fight underwater. You live underwater. And then you learn how to fight. So you get to do it. That All of this makes perfect sense to me. And if you've got a problem with the slashing versus piercing, yeah, so if it's slashing you want, you just use a short sword. It's on the list. And you jam it forward the same way you would use a javelin or a spear or a dagger. It's still technically slashing damage because that's how D&D work, right? Yeah. So like, I have no problem with any of that. That makes perfect sense to me. The ranged attacks, I love it. I don't know why net is on the list, except for like fisherman stuff right i think like, we need to see more magic nets i do as well nets are underutilized i would like to make an entire barbarian class around using a net oh like a gladiator yeah but yeah that's the, like i'm sorry i'm on board with all of this melee attack underwater shit um i think that it makes a lot of sense um it it makes me wonder though like why are tridents an underwater thing yeah, like how did that start? <laughs> like, at what point? Did, like, I know, I know Neptune. I get that. But when did that become our social consciousness thing? Is that just like when did that come into the public? Like, Little Mermaid. I must have Little been Mermaid. the Little Mermaid, right? It must have been. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's so weird. That the Little Mermaid gave us tridents as as freaking headcanon. So anyway, that's that's my rant. Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, uh, how do we feel about underwater spellcasting mechanics? Let's roll for it. I got a three. I got a 19. I got a 13. Uh, Okay, so I don't mind this at all. It is interesting to see, though, that you you said that the moment you you use a verbal uh, spell component, you're doing the choking mechanics, con modifier plus one, right? For the number of rounds that you survive. Well, that would include talking underwater, too, right? So if you're underwater and you're like, well, you know, sound travels underwater, I can yell at him to look out. Yeah, okay, but you voided your lungs. Yeah. Right? And I yeah, think we've absolutely. kind if of hinted at that. Yeah. So we've, we've kind of hinted at that earlier in this episode that, you know, getting hit in the, in the solar plexus is going to knock out your ability to, to do that. But no, man, yelling underwater, screaming. Um, I would even say that, like, the frightened, if you get frightened underwater, I would say that that would kick you into choking mechanics. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, any any of the effects that bring unconsciousness as well, even for a moment, like um, I, I or or anything where you uh, removes your ability to actively hold your breath, like even I would say stunned might knock you into that as well. Yeah, I could I could make an argument for certain kinds of prone or incapacitated. Some to think yeah. about, but if you're gonna do any of this shit, you'd be upfront about it with your players ahead of time. Yeah, don't blindside them with it. I I honestly, for me, I like it as well. Um, I like the fact that. Uh, any underwater combat is pretty much going to be the martial character's uh, highlight. And and I'm okay with that. Um, yeah, I like it. I agree. You just have to be up front um, with, with everybody from the start, especially if you as the DM know this is going to be a situation that you're going to come into. And I think it's going to be a situation where it's not that the players are going to try and cheat you or get around it in any way, but they just may not realize what what situation they're putting themselves into so they'll cast a spell and so you kind of have to it's one of those situations where you maybe wouldn't just preach at them or say you've done this do this just say okay you've put you've you've issued your verbal command 
Um, so how are you getting air back into your lungs? So, you know, like you'd kind of put it on them to, to come to the understanding themselves, self-realization where they're like, oh shit, you know, and maybe even give them the chance before they do it. If they say they want to cast the spell, I would maybe warn them saying, okay, so you know that you're going to expel your air at this point so that they have the understanding of where it goes from there. Um, I, I don't have issues with the rules. I think the rules are correct. I think it's just going to be a matter of ensuring that everybody is bought into it and understands it. I think these are rules that you should stick to hard and fast. I think there's too many ways in this game that things get hand-waved. And they get hand-waved because it's a short-term fix that ends up causing a long-term problem. You know, you guys have heard me go on about it all the times. I say that the, the reason nobody gives a shit about gold is because of the bag of holding. That's the reason. But it's because it's a short-term hand-wave that creates a long-term problem. And I think the, the, this is rules that you need to stick to. Because if you start to hand-wave it, you're, you're going to create issues. Cool. I agree with you. Okay. Good. Thank you, Dan. Um, okay. So, uh, let's let's go back to Jeremy Crawford then. So, does Jeremy Crawford's ruling implying that yelling or blowing bubbles uh, puts a character immediately into the choking mechanic? Wh- what are your thoughts on that? And I know I just kind of touched on that uh, real quickly there, but we'll roll for it. And we'll go again. 16. I got an 11. I'm going last. Um, Terry? Yeah, I agree, I agree with the rules. The same point that I've just made, so I, w- I, I won't make the whole thing again. I think it's just... You just have to stick to it. If you go outside of this, um, it's it's not going to work, uh, essentially. I don't really have anything more to add to other than what I just said. I don't know. So that was my turn. That seems like a wasted turn. But if anyone else wants to add something, I've, I've got no issues with it, really. Honestly, the only thing I'd like to stress furthermore than we have uh, with this rule is just be clear with your party members and your players before you start instituting this right and it doesn't have to be a session zero thing it could be a at the top of the session when they dive or at the top of the moment they dive into deep water and they're planning on doing this be clear as a dm that this is where you will be setting this rule if you guys speak underwater you are voiding your lungs so you will be starting on the per round mechanic rather than the per minute mechanic. Right. Um, you can last per minute as long as you hold your breath. The second you don't hold your breath, the second you lose control of your breath, you are now on drowning rules. Right. And and if you are clear to your party before that, even like don't even let them do a bunch of planning without mentioning this early right because i i know nothing more infuriating as a player than going through a massive plan with the players at the table and talking about you know we're going to swim and do this and then this and then this and then this and then my like we get half hour into the planning and then the dm goes oh yeah by the way guys uh if you lose your breath like if there's this special mechanic that would you know play as a factor to everything you guys are doing yeah right the dm uses those opportunities where the players are interacting amongst themselves to do some prep, yes, but also should be paying attention to what the plans are to kind of give them that level of surface knowledge their players would know without a role that would affect their plans. And and this is going to be one of those situations where you speak up and be like, yeah, guys, I get it, but I mean, you know, your wizard is going to know that the second you cast a spell, you're going to be voiding your lungs of air and you will be on the drowning mechanics from there on out. Yeah, look, this is the good right? kind of metagaming. I agree with you. Yeah, exactly. So just just be aware as a DM and as a player that uh, if there's going to be some environmental screwery happening with with a, a, par, a party's plan, be f- 
forthright and honest and and uh, upfront with all of these special rules as they come up at your table. Yeah. I, I only have two little things to add to this. One, uh, I do not believe that screwery is a word, so go fuck yourself, Dan. And two, um, and more importantly, I cannot find anything about a spell that creates air. All of the air spells move air within a certain area, but you cannot create a bubble underwater in here. And I feel like that's an oversight. We probably should have had spells like air that. Air bubble was legit a spell in Pathfinder, and I think it was in 3.5 as well, which did the whole water world put a bubble of air around your head thing. Yeah, and I like I that's glaringly missing here. Yep. So even if you've got like okay, so if you have water breathing, this is not an issue, right? But um like that it just seems so crippling that you wouldn't be able to create a little bubble of air to have a conversation just because you have water breathing doesn't mean the other party members necessarily for whatever happenstance reason right so um so being able to communicate is awfully one-sided i'll tell you this thieves can't suddenly matters a whole lot more to me yeah oh are we just are we just assuming that thieves can't is sign language now no, Thieves no, Can is more it's than not that. Just... It's like understanding Cockney as well, right? Like, there are ways that you turn a phrase. There are colloquialisms. There are the number of, like, the cadence of your voice or the number of times that you mentioned the weather will indicate what part of the city will be this or that. But I think that there's also a certain amount of head and hand gestures. The way that your feet are pointed when you're talking about danger, things like that. But I would be, if you're good at Thieves Can't, you're good at communicating with hand signals not sign language but hand signals yeah and i think thieves can't as well as is like any other language in that there's going to be a written component to it there's going to be a spoken component to it um how do you handle 3d movement ready to roll let's roll 14 i got a nine i got a 16 go first, yeah dan, dan you started talking about this earlier so what do you think <sighs> my problem is i don't really have a good solution theater of the mind like that's that's my solution when it comes to a battle map or something like that like i mean we're gone are the days at least personally for me where we play in the same room with each other for now with covid being around it's a it's hard to do so you've got to rely on um if you're on your roll 20s or foundries or um hero forge uh, not hero forge but on on uh these online programs working out 3d movement in combat is hard. And I mean, if you have a character with fly, it's difficult enough. Now give everybody that ability to move laterally and vertically. It's 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 gonna be it's gonna be hard to do. Um so I would recommend just make a theater theater of the mind because it's hard to stack up models one on top of the other without like buying a bunch of peripheries and, and flying stands and, and dice boxes, which is what we've used in the past, like little translucent dice cases that we would stand up or stacking dice or having a dice next to your character to show how many squares up or down your character is on the battle map. Like there's a lot of ways that this could go wrong and there is no surefire way to do it other than just say theater of the mind. And that's how I do it. Yeah, I mean, the, you you like you said there, Dan. You can come up with ways that you can make it work if you're if you're using a battle map. But even as far as theater of the mind, it's still it's it's difficult to execute. And what I would recommend for people is to use reference points. 
you know, we, we make the joke about every battle being in a wide open field or whatever. And it's the same with the ocean. It's isn't that you shouldn't be coming in across an encounter really where there's nothing around you, because that's just like an empty chapter in a book. There, there's going to be something around. There's a situation that's happened. So whether it's that your ship is sinking or whatever, but as the DM, you should have reference points. You know that there's a rudder floating at this level. There's a door over here. There's this thing over here. And you have pre-planned where these reference points are because PCs are naturally drawn towards them. No PC is going to be like, I will just stand, I will just float in the middle here. As you explain uh, or describe the area around them, they'll go, oh, I will swim towards the door and hide behind it. Perfect. Now I know exactly where you are because of my reference points that I pre-planned. Yeah, I agree. Honestly, with the moment I get into 3D movement, I abandon everything grid-related and mini-related, and I will go directly into... Um, theater of the mind but i rely like i sink back into my imagination and i become 10 times more descriptive than it would if i've got a map you know the map oh you know do you move towards the door everyone can see where the door is and they can count the squares when i'm going off theater of the mind just just to remind everybody i no longer talk in feet i talk in relation to each other this creature is now twice as far as your ability to get to them you would have to dash to get that far. And yeah. they move three times as quickly as you do. So you are within their range, but you are not within their or but they're yeah. not within yours. Right? Like I'm 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 starting to paint a picture more about as you get closer to the ship, the creature comes from underneath the ship towards you. having reference points is really important. Relying on theater of the mind is important, but consistent recaps are at the beginning of everybody's turn. Since the last round, everything has changed a hundred times. So that player is going to need refreshers and they may be confused as things don't necessarily apply to them when you're not talking directly to them. So for example, Dan just finished his turn. I'm going to summarize Dan's turn for Terry, who's next in the initiative order, and say, Dan just did this, which means that these two sharks are over here. The Sahuigan is beneath you over there. You can see Megan and Dave fighting up on the ship 20 feet above you, but you cannot get to them, right? And I'm, I'm really kind of um, opening it up. And I'm going to start to fudge the rules because I'm not going to do Pythagorean theory on this, right? <laughs> like, that's just what it comes down to. Is it possible that the spell will be able to hit them? Yes, then hit. Rule of cool, let's move on. Uh, well, at this point, guys, I'd like to just point out something uh, very positive that, uh, that I think hopefully is not lost on the both of you, but everybody's involved with this podcast sees how hard the both of you are working, or rather we don't see. Rather, we don't see how hard you're working, but we see the, the effects of what's coming to fruition. I'd, I'd like for a second for you two just to reflect on everything that, that you have been able to build over the past couple of years. You know, I go into these Discord. I don't live on Discord too much, but I jump in every now and again just to see what people are talking about. And there's, there's more and more names on our channels all the time. There's new positions essentially being added um, as this podcast begins to grow and, and and really from where we are today for the, the work that you know we a few lucky few of us get to put in every now and again but really you two are putting in constantly and to see the amount of downloads that we have now the amount of shows that are shooting off from different shows the amount of people that have started off as fans of the podcast and now just trying to get involved as the, as, as much as they can you know to think within a, a two-year span you've been able to do very well and so i think we should just take this moment 
for you to just to realize what you've been able to, to build. It's not lost on any of us. We see it. Like We see all these episodes going out. And uh, really, this is just a, a congratulations for the both of you because what you've been able to build is, is fantastic. It really is because not everybody else out there is doing it. You know, we get a lot of critics and we don't get a lot of critics, but we get, we get some people will critique a lot of things in life and they'll say, you should have done this, should have done that. You're not including this. You're not including that. But if it was so important to them, they'd go out and fucking build it. But they don't, you know. You two did, and uh, and and really, just well done, guys. This this podcast is excellent. I'm I'm so happy to be a part of it. I I can't wait till we can get back to recording in studio properly. And um, it's just an excuse for me to shit talk with my friends every week. Show up. I feel like I'm like a sports analyst, like after the Super Bowl. But I'm just talking about these ridiculous things, and it's 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 a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Like who gets to sit back and just critique the effectiveness of like Sahuagin weapons or something? Me, I get to do that because of what you two have built. So great job. That's my positive. <laughs> Uh, thing for today. Well, thank you, Terry. Let's also have a moment Thanks, of silence Terry. for Dan's free time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're not wrong. Um, okay, well, on the back of that, I am going to point everybody listening to uh, our Instagram page and Facebook, of course, we're under It's a Mimic, as well as r slash It's a Mimic on Reddit. You can reach out to us um, through our email at info at It's a Mimic.com because we want to hear from you guys. We want more interactions. We are having a lot of fun with the community right now. I'm actually hearing from some new people that are just, you know, discovering us. Since the YouTube channel went up, there's a lot more activity there. So I'm um, getting more mailbag questions all the time coming in. If you have any thoughts or ideas or um, questions, Hit us up, and we will throw it on a mailbag uh, episode, or try to answer it if it's if it's quick and dirty and easy, and you only want one person's opinion. Um, reach out and send it to us, and it doesn't have to be just me or Dan. If you got a question for freaking Kyle or Megan or Terry or anybody, you reach out and and ask. Don't bother asking Dave. He's um he's a crotchety old fuck. But the rest <laughs> of us would be happy to hear from you guys. Sure. Don't so, ask me uh, stupid Dave- things. Ask Terry stupid things. I'm requesting now that you ask Terry stupid things. Yes, I agree. So we we should have a segment at the end of every mailbag episode called Terry's stupid questions, where he's got a roast. Yeah, here's Terry's stupid question of the day. Somebody asked. Hey, we 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 have banished Uncle Terry from the podcast for very good reasons. You banished. There will be a reckoning. I'm telling you. Oh no! All right. Anyway, so let's jump into. Okay, we've talked about underwater adventures and aquatic stuff. We've talked about combat underwater and exploration, but let's talk about what's happening on the surface of the water because Ghost of Saltmarsh gave us something a little different. And if you didn't pick it up, you should understand that there are now some official things, some rulings, some rules as written about ships and the way that ships work. So. For the most part, a lot of this also applies to airships, but it is specifically for seafaring vessels that we're going to talk about really quickly. I'm not going to get into the specifics of different ships. They tend to run like a monster that can be inhabited. I would look to these mechanics for a lot of different ways that other vehicles would work. I'd also use the Infernal Machines from um, from yeah, Descent yeah. of Avernus as well, but... Um, I If I want to inhabit and run a Warforged Colossus in Eberron, I would be looking to these kind of things and building them. They do give you a number of examples, but it's D&D, sky's the limit, use your imagination. But here's what you need to know. First of all, you do get a stat block for every kind of ship. And it includes your size, of course. They all tend to be large, huge, or gargantuan. I mean, unless you're going to deal with the 
a halfling canoe, which would be medium. I, I think we're talking about the larger sizes here. Um, but it also gives you how much space it takes up. Uh, and that is in like uh, how many feet by how many feet. Remember, they cannot squeeze through narrow spaces, which means that if it's 10 feet uh, across and you've got to go through a five foot channel, you just straight up crash. And there are rules for that. There's also capacity, both of creatures and cargo. Creatures are crew and passengers. And from what I've been able to see, crew outnumbers passengers usually at two to one. Capacity is done, however, by weight. So if you're going to give a shit about encumbrance, you will Nasty. really give a shit about it on a ship. Yeah. Travel pace is calculated by miles per hour, which you can imagine frustrates me because I don't do that conversion. I wish it was metric. Fuck. Now, there are ability scores, um, and they're the same six ability scores that you see in a regular stat block. Normally, strength and constitution tend to be high. Dex is low, but the mental stats are a zero because they ain't no brain. Now, there are vulnerabilities, resistances, and immunities, which seemed a little strange to me until I saw something else a little bit later, and I'm going to touch on this. Um, but whatever they, these are, they apply to all parts of the ship unless indicated otherwise. For example, most ships are immune to poison and psychic damage. The conditions that they're immune to, of course, are blinded, charmed, deafened, exhaustion, frightened, incapacitated, paralyzed, petrified, poisoned, prone, stunned, and unconscious. That all makes sense. There's nothing there that makes me say, hey, I shouldn't be able to, uh, or I, I definitely want to be able to petrify a ship. I could, I don't see the need for that. Um, mm -hmm. But every ship is made up of four kinds of components. There's the hull, which is essentially the frame of the ship and the ship itself, like the decks and whatnot. There's the control, which is the steering mechanism. So think of, uh, Think of like a giant captain's wheel on the top of the deck, although it doesn't necessarily have to be that. There's movement, um, which indicates how it moves. So think oars or sails and weapons, which are weapons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they all have uh, each one of these components, the hull, the control, the movement and the weapons all have uh, an armor class. And a certain number, a certain amount of hit points. Although some of them have what's called a damage threshold, which means that it's immune to damage unless the amount of damage in that attack surpasses the amount listed in the threshold. That was a lot of words. Let me break it down for you. If it's got a damage threshold of ten, when you do a when you attack it, it is immune to all of the damage if you do say eight piercing damage. Nothing happens. Huh, it's just okay. straight up immune. But if you do twelve, then it will take two. This is essentially the damage resistance, um, the DR from earlier edition, right? Or damage reduction was what it was before, right? So, and you, uh, players would have this, characters would have this in the um, freaking earlier editions. We don't have that in 5th ed, except now on ships. So, um, the control will actually tend to have some unique details beyond just the AC and the hit points, um, including how sharp a ship can turn uh, in a certain amount of time and the different kinds of movement will indicate a movement speed and the conditions which make the movement possible, like wind for sails or the number of crew to man the oars. So there will often be more than one kind of movement for like sails, but if, if there's no not enough wind, then there'll be people to man the oars, but you need this many people. If you use the oars, you'll go this quickly. If you use the sails, you go this quickly, so on and so forth. It's actually not as complicated as it sounds because it's just straight up stats listed in a stat block. And weapons cool. essentially have the info that you'd expect to see in any weapon attack in the monster manual. You know, it's got the whatever to hit, the range, and the uh, the number of targets it can hit, as well as the damage. Um, sometimes they're siege weapons, which of course means that it does twice as much damage to structure. Yeah. 
boats are considered structures. So there are also upgrades that you can do. There are fun magical upgrades for each kind of the, of the components, including upgrading the hull to become a living vessel, which, um, which was made by Feywild Eladrin. That's one of the options, which is why there would be different immunities and stuff on the different components, which I thought was a lot of fun. A lot of this magical stuff gives it kind of a living feel or uh, an imbued feel. Um, you can have ever full sails from the elemental plane of air, or you can use arcane artillery as a weapon. There are also figureheads that you can mount at the front of your ship. Some of them are magical and do different things. And there are other miscellaneous upgrades that you can do as well. There are other details listed with each ship, including how high the ceilings are below deck, what lighting is available, there's information about rigging, railing, available rowboats if your ship is large enough, uh, do you have a rudder, do you have a big steering wheel, where the weapons are mounted, there's all that information available in the examples, but these are things you should think about when creating your own ship. And then it jumps into crew, and there's a lot of information about crew. Most of the crew listed are simply NPC stat blocks from the monster manual, although most just use a commoner stat block. There are different roles on a ship, though, that these different NPCs would step into, and in theory, your player characters could as well. They are mm -hmm. captain, first mate, the bosun, quartermaster, the surgeon, and the cook. Each has a description of their duty aboard the ship, as well as the highest ability score it should have. For example, the cook needs to have a high constitution. It also gets one skill or tool proficiency that they should have. So that kind of gives you a way to build their each one of these uh, NPCs very quick and easy and, and cheap and dirty. And you'll be able to add a bunch of flavor to them without having to build an entire new character stat block, right? Each overall crew has a quality score that depends on the morale the hardships that the crew has undertaken recently and the casualties that the crew has taken this is a modifier that gets added to the dex roll for initiative of the ship itself in combat hmm. so you do have to as a dungeon master keep an eye on that it starts off at a plus four but and it can go up as far as a plus 10 or down as far to a, as a minus 10 so there are a bunch of different actions you can take in combat um Two of them that are special ones uh, that can only be done by the captain, first mate, and the bosun are take aim, which is how uh, you control what all of the weapons are going to point at this round instead of each of them acting individually, or full speed ahead if you have the ability to ram. There are actually some guidelines for managing a large crew in combat, as well as some rules on how to ram your ship forward. There are also rules for crashing a ship. There are some suggestions for activities while traveling. They include drawing maps, some fishing, and noticing threats. These can be done by anyone, but things like repairing the ship itself or raising morale can only be done by certain crew members. There are a decent number of interesting details in here, but they mostly come down to an ability check that has to be. There are also a number of different hazards that are listed um, when you are sailing as well, and they rely on group checks as outlined in the DMG. Some of these hazards are things like crew conflicts, and running in fog and getting lost. Infestations is another one. There are useful tables in the book in Ghosts of Saltmarsh about uh, the DCs for each of these, which ability checks to use and what the different results might be, which I thought was really fun. So there are different conditions of success and outcomes of success. Now, there are some limitations as well. Characters, NPCs or, or PCs can row a boat for eight hours per day or can row longer at the risk of exhaustion. It's the same forced march rules that you were talking about earlier, Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds a lot like uh, the swimming we talked about earlier. Yeah. A fully crewed sailing vessel can sail all day, assuming its sailors work in shifts. 
In a dead calm, which means there's no wind, ships cannot move under sail and must be rowed. A ship sailing against a strong wind moves at half speed. This all makes perfect sense to me. There are yeah. a whole lot of nitty-gritty details for each one of these. It's a lot of fun to read through, and I feel like they've covered pretty much everything that I'm that I'm looking for. Um, do you guys want to grab your dice? And uh, sure. I'm curious to know what you guys think about these things. So let's uh, let's roll initiative again. Eight. I got a 16. I got an 18, Daniel. So You son of a bitch. The first thing was um, the ship stats and the details for the component. So again, just really quickly, the ship stats were size, the space it takes up, capacity of creatures and cargo, travel pace, ability scores, vulnerabilities, and then the four components, which were hull, control, movement, and weapon. If I can be honest, I don't know enough about ships to say whether or not they missed anything, but that sounds really <laughs> comprehensive. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Like, it, it, it feels like it uh, covers everything in terms that are not nautical so that the layman could understand it. Because like you, I might have done rowing in uh, high school for a, a season. I don't know which way, you know, aft is, but... <laughs> Like, well, look, okay. I actually, I, removing I'm surprised, the nautical terms is nice. I'm surprised that you don't know your bow from your aft, Dan. But I, I, I will tell you this: the the thing that I am probably looking for that that's missing is the navigation, whether it is a, a spyglass or a mechanic for the crow's nest. But we have navigation rules and wilderness exploration rules. And you said earlier that it's it's. 10 miles from the crow's nest in all directions during good weather, right? And there are yeah. actual, th there's some rules for it, but there's not a station for it. You know what I mean? Sure. That would that would be the thing that I'm looking for. Um, but like the maps even include like captain's quarters, crew quarters, shit. Like it's, it's comprehensive enough. Terry, what mm -hmm. do you think? I think it's <laughs> kind of of the same mind in that I, I i don't think i know enough about ships where i can have like an educated opinion because i feel like i could give an opinion and somebody that knew what they were talking about would be like terry that is ridiculous i th i think what's going to happen with this is that this is a system you just need to play with right you need to give it a go and then through experience you're going to find out what you like and what you don't like when it comes to everything else that we've discussed today it seems so obvious because it's things that we can uh, we have an intuition on because we can we can imagine it um, through experience but with this i can't i mean i guess it seems to have covered everything off the top of my head i can't find any issues with it i can't predict any issues uh so no i don't have any issues with it <laughs> Yeah, the one thing that I think is really interesting is, and like I say, they have rules about crashing a ship, right? Yeah. So I didn't get into it because it's very specific. If this, then this. Um, and there's a lot of it, but like they have it out there. I thought it was really cool because your Kraken is not just going to show up and sink the ship in two rounds. With all of this damage reduction and shit as well, and the fact that there's uh, hit points and an AC for the different components, including like your hull and whatnot, like it, it makes it so that the weakest part of your ship is the crew. Yeah. Right? Like it, it's the crew that's going to get attacked, not the ship itself. Yeah. Um, let's roll again. Because uh, I want to know, do you guys like the breakdown of the crew? Oh, I got a four. I got a natural 20. I got an 11. Woo! So, Terry, what? it was captain, first mate, bosun, quartermaster, surgeon, and cook. Yeah, I like it. I like it that you wrote bosun phonetically so that nobody ran the risk of saying botswain, which is good. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, I, I think this is fine because this is like the essentials. 
right? So if you're going to add anything else in, or if you want to appoint any other positions or whatever, because it's part of your game, you have the you have the freedom to do that. But then you also have the essential positions uh, that are needed. I mean, yeah, I guess Cook is a set. I mean, you could you could have a ship going on the sea, but you're not going to get very far without a Cook. Um, I I think that's there because you're going to have to start thinking about rationing like salt water and seawater issues, rations, um, stopping off to hunt or to gather right every once in a while. Right, right. And I think this it, it, it covers all of the essential areas of something you'd think of for a challenge for the players, right? Or for or any kind of encounter. So as a DM, yes. if you're if you're new to doing this type of campaign, what you can do is like I've been saying earlier today, is you can lean into the rules for inspiration. So all I gotta do is go, Okay, well here's my, my six essential uh, crew members. Well what happens if I remove one of these? Like we just talked about the cook. Okay, well now there's an issue with rationing, now there's an issue with this. Um and so when it's laid out so simply, it's not something to get feel overwhelmed by or or, or restricted by but you can use it as inspiration for which direction you're going to take your campaign in a controlled manner. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Can, can, can I just ask, what is a bosun? I don't know what, I know the term, but I don't know what they do. I'm going to be honest. Bosuns, coxswains, I've got no idea what they're doing. Does does the coxswain run the sextant? Like <laughs> The sextant's the little... Uh, spyglass type thing yeah the sextant not the sextant terry yeah i want you to understand that that that's the funniest joke that dan has ever made on this podcast (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) i i was waiting all day to come up with a sextant joke (laughs) so uh, the bosun provides technical advice to the captain and crew and leads repair and maintenance efforts a good bosun. Oh, okay. So, so he's 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 the he's the fixer. Cool. A good bosun has a high strength score as well as proficiency with carpenter's tools and the athletic the athletic skills. Okay, so if you like break up uh, one of the cross beams or mast or something, the bosun's the guy who's going to fix that. Yep, one of the cross beams. <laughs> I don't know what they're called, Adam. The the rigging. If if some of the rigging breaks, the bosun's going to be the guy that fixes. Again, I am completely ignorant would, when it comes to boat I, stuff. I'm completely ignorant as well, but I would just love to be there the, the day that Dan is around somebody who's not ignorant. Like, I would like to see Dan on a ship using all these terms as though he knows what he's talking about <laughs> on a crew. And then I'd just be cringing at embarrassment because he keeps... I'd be like, I swear he just said coxman. He just said coxman. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, if you would like for the three of us to try to sail around the world, you can donate to our Kickstarter. Okay, um, my next question is, most of the ship activities break down into skill checks. How do you feel about that? Do you think it's boring? I don't even need to roll. I just want like general discussion. Is that boring? No, no. It, it encourages uh, skill checks. It encourages um, some realism. And for guys like me who know dick all about boat stuff, having a list of skills and what they do on a boat. And like if there's a skill listed here that has a skill check associated or a task listed here that has a skill check associated, it must be important enough to happen on a boat. So when I'm running a pirate campaign, which is something I'm currently doing, I know I can go to this list and be like, okay, I need to get the players to swab the poop deck. Sure. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't mind skill checks in the same vein that I, I, I'm... In, uh, in in agreement with Dan in this, but the, what I'm quickly realizing here is that somebody at the table needs to understand how ships work. Because if your players don't know and your DM doesn't know, how are we 
actually doing this. Like, if they're like, I want the ship to go over there. I don't know if the ship can go over there based on I this know, weather. I and know this Dave's. <laughs> Yeah. I know Dave's whole mentality is going to be like, there's an elemental trap, and they just tell it to do it by poking it with a cattle. No, 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 you're wrong. You know, Dave is actually a captain. He was a captain of a houseboat. Okay, that, uh, sure. I mean, that's just, Dave was the one that didn't have to buy the beer because he was the one steering the thing. Like, I, th- oh, that's what no, no, that no, means no, when it comes You don't to understand. Dave. Dave has, like, boating license and shit. Like, that man legitimately knows what to do out in the water. Uh, he's our resident outdoorsman, and he has, like, expanded that into outdoorsy, boatsy shit as well. That's what I get to call. We should have called this episode Boatsy Shit, because that is about my level of intelligence. The one that should have had Dave. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> Good old Captain Dave, um, <laughs> who smells an awful lot like Captain Morgan. Um, I, uh, I think that, honestly, you guys, you're right. It makes it accessible. It's not that it's boring. I don't want to get into a whole bunch of nautical shit. I just want to play D&D. This makes it have enough flavor without dragging it down. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's... guys, we've we've covered underwater exploration, underwater combat, ships, and their crews are littered throughout the player's handbook. Um, and, and they're mentioned, um, all the rulings for them in the monster manual for their stat blocks. There We've had to dig into the DMG, the Ghost of Salt Marsh. There's a lot of stuff that's out there. Do you feel like 5th edition has done a decent job of naval and underwater play? I mean, when it comes... Are we rolling up for this? Or? Yeah, let's roll for it. I got a 4. 18. I got a 15. Terry, how do you feel? Yeah, I mean, naval play is something that I'm quite enthusiastic about. And so... I suppose that We're not out. talking about your belly button. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> We're talking about boats still, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, that was one I couldn't... I, I, had to, I had to throw it out there. Yes, I, I we're, we're we're talking about we're talking about things on water, not not things involving salt and, and uh, tequila. There, Terry. <laughs> Regardless, we end up discussing semen. <laughs> Gross. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, yeah, I think they've done a great job in balancing it that it's accessible for for the, the people like the three of us, where we have no idea what we're talking about with ships and stuff. Uh, you know, but they've they've made it accessible for us. But it's. It's not overwhelming, you know, you can, with the amount of rules and background and flavor text that we've gone through here, you have the ability to lean into some of it and just ignore the rest of it. If you're like, oh my goodness, like dealing with the depths of the ocean at the same time as dealing with the ships, the same time as with everything else, it's going to be too much. You know, you have the ability to leave some of it alone. You know, what I would say to people is, is don't be overwhelmed by the amount of rules here, uh, but instead... Is, is use that for your inspiration. Pick a, a segment of it and just lean into that, knowing that you because there's rules for it, you can control it, but you can use that as your inspiration for building your encounters and building that part of your campaign because you can build them around this set of rules instead of coming up with an idea and then, oh, hopefully that will work with the rules. Reverse it. Use the rules um, something to lean into, and I think you're going to have much uh, much better success. Yeah, I agree. Um, honestly, I think this is comprehensive enough. I wish it had all been compiled into a single book. I don't know why the Ghost of Salt Marsh is saying, oh, if go look in the DMG for this and go check out the Monster Manual for that and go over here for the Dungeon Master's Guide and to, to get this really specific ruling here, but the Player's Handbook has a forced march ruling. Like, there's just a lot. I would like yeah. it all. It should have all either been in the DMG at first or compiled in Ghost of Salt Marsh. I think it's comprehensive enough. I like it. Um, it just occurred to me as Terry was talking, 
we don't have Spelljammer yet, so we don't have a whole lot of rules for spaceships. But if I was going to try to design or play with a uh, Mind Flayer ship, I would be leaning on these as well. Um, at least the crew breakdown and whatnot. Um, yeah, and... I mean, yeah, I mean, spoilers for uh, one of the published uh, um, modules right now. In Icewind Dale, there is a crashed Mind Flayer spaceship. So yeah, and I haven't um, I haven't dug too deeply into that, but there's a lot of potential there. I mean, Ill- illithid spaceships are classic D anD D. They've been around since the original, right? So um, yeah, so I would be looking in this direction for things like crashing a ship, visibility, just that kind of thing. This is a good place to start. Yeah, um, I I for one am really thankful that we get to do this kind of episode after Ghosts of Saltmarsh has been released. Because if we were trying to do this before Ghosts of Saltmarsh was released, we'd be complaining a lot of of the ambiguity in the DMG when it comes to this stuff. Ghosts of Saltmarsh really completed the thought, or at least gave a more fleshed out version of the thought behind a naval style campaign, whether that's pirates or otherwise. Um, I I personally like what we have here. Um, You mentioned earlier using these for airships and stuff. I love that as well. I... I, it has been a long time since I've had a legit airship in one of my D&D games, and I really, really miss it. it used to be something like, you get your keep, then you get your airship. All right, but Final Fantasy, calm down. <laughs> but insofar as these rules are concerned, man, I'm, I'm, I'm really loving what they do. They're really useful to me currently because I am running a uh, homebrew campaign that is all pirate related. So um, having some insight into the types of ships I could build and how they're crewed and how the players will interact with each crew. Because remember, each crew, they may be NPCs, but you could add additional flavor in when it comes to like what race those NPCs are or what what backgrounds those NPCs are, right? Like a human who is a outlander on a boat um, and has the role of a bosun is going to look a lot different from an elf outlander bosun or a human noble bosun or however it is, right? When you're fleshing out these NPCs for your boat, um, you have a lot of freedom to be uh, creative with it and and flavor your boat based off the NPCs. And uh, considering if you run a naval campaign like a lot do, there's gonna be a lot of time on this boat. And if you have 10 or so crew members you have opportunity as a DM to really flesh out 10 or so NPCs that you are literally locking into a gigantic wood coffin on the sea with your players. Those are the only 10 people they can interact with. So you could play this uh, social uh, Jenga with them a lot easier when it comes to this stuff. And and Ghosts of Saltmarsh, the DMG, all give a lot of really, really, really good foundations to build on for a naval campaign. It makes naval campaigns possible. So I, I like it. Obviously, I like it. So that'll be it for this discussion on Aquatic Adventures. We've got a million more ideas and arguments about dungeon mastering. So subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Next week, we'll be diving back into the mobs, starting, as promised last episode, with Sahuajin. Sahu again. Did I get it? Damn it! Thank you for listening to another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website at www.itsamimic.com as well as a store for some awesome merch. 
We also rely on word of mouth to get news of the podcast out there to the community. So please pass the word on to everybody you know that we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to the It's a Mimic podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. So there were two things that occurred to me while we were doing this episode, and I'm like, wait a minute, I gotta look this up. The first is, um, I remember seeing in the DMG that there's a rule for frigid water, and it's okay. it says right in the book, and this is different from everything else, so I assume that this is when you're like submerged up to your neck. A creature can be immersed in frigid water for a number of minutes equal to its constitution score before suffering any ill effect. Remember, constitution score, not modifier. Yikes. Each additional minute spent in frigid water requires the creature to succeed on a DC-10 con save or gain one level of, uh, of exhaustion. Creatures with resistance or immunity to cold damage automatically succeed, as do creatures that are naturally adapted to living in ice-cold water. Okay. So, I mean, we didn't really talk about Arctic naval stuff, but I guess that that's as close as we get to it. Right, so you can you can dive in. You're gonna worry about your breathing before you're gonna worry about freezing to death. But I wouldn't swim around for too long, or you're gonna have some real issues. Yeah. The other thing is, do you guys know the difference between a ship and a boat? Uh, is it mast? Like, why, why does it always come down to mast size with you, Dan? Jesus. Just roll a d12. No, uh, that's a legitimate. That's a legitimate question, though. Like, is it the method of propulsion? Terry, any guesses? Mm, I would believe I would guess it's mass. So, among sailing vessels, the distinction between ships and boats is that a ship is a square-rigged craft. I have no idea what the fuck that means. But it has at least three masts. A boat doesn't. So, one, huh. one or two masts, it's a boat. When it comes to motorized craft, a ship is a large vessel intended for ocean-going, or at least deep water transport, and a boat is anything else. So, uh. I get, I, you're right. I mean, it's going to boil down to mast size, I guess. Like, are you going out to... Are you ocean faring are you seafaring or are you just hugging the coast yeah and how how large i mean a frigate compared to like a, a long boat right a long boat would be a boat a frigate would be a ship hmm. yeah that keeps it interesting i'm gonna go watch the pirates of the caribbean movies and be like nope that's a boat this isn't a ship i'm just gonna start pointing at things <laughs> and at what point is it considered deep water as well i'm sure there's an answer for that but we'll have to wait yeah, I, I couldn't tell you. Deepwater Transport is a barrel that I put Dan on and then throw it overboard. Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production. <laughs> okay, you're done, Dan. <laughs> <laughs>